Well, we continue our sermon series this fall in the Minor Prophets, these, uh, these books that are at the end of our Bible. I joke every week, it's the part of your Bible that the pages stick. Um, most people, it's true, even those of us that have been Christians a long time and read our Bibles, um, they're, they're just, we don't spend a lot of time in them. I got a, a text message this week from Ace Gentner. Folks, you remember Ace and Sarah and their kids, they're serving the Lord in Spain, and uh, Ace texted me. Um, and said, hey, I see you in the Minor Prophets. Those are great. Boy, a lot of people forget to go there, you know, at times. And uh, um, anyway, that was fun to to hear from him and and hear that comment. Uh, Just remember again, um, we call them typically in our English Bibles, the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. They they come at the end, but they they don't necessarily chronologically come at the end. They're they're not, you know, right before the time of Jesus. They're actually in the history of of the people of Israel uh, before the kingdom was divided, once the kingdom was divided, and, and they went off into exile. Uh, and then also some of them spoke and wrote when, when God's people returned from exile. Uh, and, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. For the, the Jewish people, they call the minor prophets the book, singular, of the 12. And that's another thing to keep in mind. We're spending one sermon uh, over these 12 weeks looking at each one and trying to understand its its teaching and its message, but really, um, they the Hebrews they believe that all twelve are one book and they need to be read each of them in light of the whole. And so there's this whole message of sin and and and, and judgment and restoration. That um, yes, they each kind of drive in on one of those things and some more than others. But but it's one book of the twelve for for the the Jewish people, and that's important for us to remember. And then finally, again, minor simply means uh, minor as in small compared to uh, major, uh, compared to large. And so today, I'm, my joke is that we come to Obadiah, and he is the most minor, minor prophet. Um, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. In fact, in the Hebrew language, um, there's only 292 Hebrew words. This is minor potatoes, minor prophet uh, this morning. Again, minor, not because it's unimportant, but because it's, it is small. So if you haven't already, please open to Obadiah. Um, It's the fourth minor prophet. It follows Hosea, Joel, Amos, and it precedes Jonah. And Lord willing, we will look at Jonah uh, next week. Um, And so if you still have uh, video cassettes, VHS tapes at home, and you can put on the VeggieTales of Jonah, some of your families still have that. Maybe by now it's on DVD or somewhere in the cloud. You You can get ready. And if you don't know what a VeggieTale is, don't worry about it. Take a look at the screen or in your Bible at Obadiah 1, 1. I put this verse on the screen. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So I've underlined in, in bold face those two words, Obadiah and Edom. And so we want to orient ourselves to who these two people, teams, you know, sides are, if you will, uh, as we prepare to get into Obadiah. So first, Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah's name can mean either the Lord's servant or one who serves Yahweh. It's basically uh, the same thing. That's what Obadiah means. Obadiah was a very common name uh, in this time, and in fact, it's very common in the Old Testament. There's at least 11 other Obadiahs uh, that are, are listed. If you were to do a search for Obadiah, you'd find several and most scholars believe that this Obadiah that's received this vision 
is not any of those others, okay? So this, we don't know much more about uh, Obadiah that's writing and speaking this, this vision. He's, again, most likely not one of those other Obadiahs. Uh, it goes on to say there, thus says the Lord, and, and whether or not, um, you know, this one starts this way, thus says the Lord. We, we noted last week, Amos starts um, uh, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, uh, but then uh, thus says the Lord shows up and, and so on. But even here, Obadiah is making it clear that um, this, is, this is a vision of Obadiah, but it was the Lord speaking. And he goes on right away to say that this, this word is about Edom. And this is, this is a bit unusual for us so far, because in our others, it's been a word to God's people, but also to the nations. And, but this is a word uh, to this, this country, this nation, um, that's Edom. And so hopefully you're asking, well, well who is Edom? Okay, I'm glad you asked. We should talk about Edom just for uh, a moment. So Edom uh, is a neighboring country of God's people. Um, so if you were looking at a map and you saw uh, the, the two kingdoms of God's people, uh, Edom would be to the, the southeast of uh, neighbors of Judah, okay, right there. Um, but there's way more to who Edom was than just simply their immediate neighbor to the south. East. Um, Edom comes up quite a bit in the prophets. In fact, it was in Amos. We're going to see Edom's name again in some of the others. Um, and then in some of the major prophets, there's a word against Edom, a word of judgment. Um, but, but this most minor, minor prophet is all about them. So again, who are they? Well, keep your place in Obadiah, but if you're able, but flip back to Genesis. We need to go to our first book of our Bible, Genesis. Um, and we're going to start in chapter 25. Uh, and so I've put a few of the passages, the references on the screen, uh, and I'm going to read them and kind of jump, and, and you can follow along. Um, who is Edom? So think and remember, recall the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's a lot within each of them and their stories uh, but Abraham, he fathered Isaac, of course, and Ishmael. We'll not talk about Ishmael right now. But let's, let's talk about uh, Abraham fathering Isaac, okay? And now let's pick up Isaac's story um, in Genesis 25, beginning at verse 21. Genesis 25 at verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations, twins, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, 
Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I just have to pause every time I read these stories or listen to them. Um, just what's, what's <laughs> in between the lines, you know, in, in verses like this. Um, one parent loving one child way more than the love he showed to the other. And one parent, maybe to make up for that, loving that child way more than the other. Once, verse 29, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And then again, we get this parenthetical comment. Therefore, his name was called Edom because in Hebrew, the name Edom, that's remember, we're, we're thinking Obadiah, right? Um, this, this word uh, concerning Edom. In Hebrew, the name Edom is similar to the word red. So that's why uh, Esau would be called Edom. Jacob said, okay, I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Really? You're, you're that hungry? You're going to die? Well, kids, right? <laughs> I'm about to die, grown-ups too, of what use is a birthright to me? And, and so, again, we don't have time to dig into all of that, but he, he, uh, he gave Esau, verse 34 says, uh, he swore him, and sold his birthright, verse 33, and then verse 34. So Jacob gave him bread, and what is this stew that's so important? It's lentil stew. Come on, right? Now, I can enjoy a good bowl of lentil stew like some of you, but for your birthright, buddy. Uh, but again, in the moment, a fleshly appetite, a longing, a need, he gave up something. And so thus Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. And then again, it says, thus Esau, by doing what he did, he despised his birthright by that flippant disregard of it. Uh, Jump ahead to Genesis 26, at verse 34 and 35. This is a little bit later. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They took two wives, but not from amongst their people. That's the point. Verse 35, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So not necessarily the wives per se, but the new families made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So there's this tension that's just continuing to build. So many of you know how the story continues in Genesis 27. So now this is again familiar for many of us. Um, Isaac is getting older. And he knows he's going to die soon. He wants to bless Esau uh, before he dies. That's Genesis 27, 4. And again, so he sends his son out. He's a great hunter. Ask him to go out and hunt some game. Come in and prepare a meal. And I'm going to bless you. Well, Rebecca hears this. And so she goes and with Jacob. They concoct this plan. Come on, let's prepare something quickly. Let's get you all dressed up. Your dad can't see anymore. And, and, and we'll put some of your brother's clothes on you and some of his smells, and you'll come in with, you know, in a costume of sorts, but, you know, a disguise, really, and, and he'll think it's you, and then you'll get blessed. Jump to Genesis 36, 6. 
So, so that happens, sorry, and, and, and it's not good. And so then at verse, 30, uh, verse 6 of chapter 36, um, more has happened, and then again, that, that blessing has take, taken place. Esau's heartbroken because of the fact that, that his dad blessed the younger and all of these things. Uh, and so these two brothers and their families, they, they separate. 36.6, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. This is that land now to the southeast. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, but, but also the reality is they didn't get along. So verse 8, Esau settled in the hill country of Seir, and Esau is Edom. And so all of that, just so when we think about who is Edom, who is this nation that God is speaking through, speaking to through Obadiah, it's brother Jacob, their family. They're estranged, but they're family. And there's been a lot, again, there's a lot more history of, of their interactions and so forth, but there you have it. Esau is Edom, Edomites and Israelites, they didn't get along. Generation after generation, they would fight and feud. And so Obadiah's message from God is to this country. And as we're going to see, um, it is a, it a message of, of judgment. Um, skip ahead in your thinking, and we're not going to flip there, but into the New Testament, at the time of the birth of Jesus, you recall, there's this king, this wicked king, uh, known as King Herod the Great, uh, at the time of Jesus, who worked for Rome, um, we, we know that Herod the Great was an Idumean, which is simply the Greek for an Edomite. So King Herod, who the Jews hated because, of course, he was doing the work of Rome, well, they probably also hated him because he was an Edomite. He was an Idumean. So um, we have these, again, these little threads of connection all throughout our Bibles. So this most minor prophet, back into Obadiah, is directed at Edom. And, and when uh, this was written, most likely this comes about right after the people of Judah are taken captive by Babylon, sometime probably around 586 B.C. Um, and so here's what's happened. Babylon has come in, and Edom, they, they don't say, oh, we're going to help our brothers. You know, they basically say, hey, go right ahead. Go for it, and then we're going to see in here that they're very complicit um, in helping Babylon take their brothers captive. Just listen to Psalm 137 if you want to make a mental note. Um, again, you know, this is another example of how our Bibles are placed in a way that makes sense, but Psalm 137 isn't a Psalm of David. In fact, Psalm 137 was written uh, after the people were taken into exile in Babylon. And this is what it says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So they're in captive, they're made to make music, but how can they do the music like they used to? That's kind of the, the point. Verse 4, chapter 137 how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And then here, verse seven, 
Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down its foundations. Kind of gives me chills, just like they did not like Edom. So this this psalm, this prayer of God, get them. And I'm not going to read the rest of Psalm 137 because it's pretty grim. You can read it. We get a picture of the context, I hope. So Obadiah, he's a prophet with a vision from God for Edom, this relative and neighbor some 2,500 years ago that would be judged for their complicit behavior with Babylon. You might be thinking, okay, that's all good and great, but what does this most minor prophet have to do with us today, Paul? (laughs) Well, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 15, um, in both places, the Apostle Paul, he, he says a couple different ways that what it was written for us in the Old Testament was written for our instruction and for our example. These, these stories, this history, it was written so that we could learn from some things. And so this, this word of the Lord, this, uh, this vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, there's, there's truth in it for us to learn who God is and what matters to him, okay? And I hope we're going to see that uh, today. We're going to walk through this uh, whole book, and you're going to hear two main things, um, pride and, and the day of the Lord. Those are kind of two sub-themes uh, that, that we need to hear for us today, okay? So um, briefly, the outline of Obadiah, um, there's a couple different ways to break it up, but essentially, there's an announcement of judgment in verses 1 to 9, and then some reasons for judgment in verses 10 to 14. And then verse 15 is kind of like a hinge or the pivot verse, uh, but, but that sets us into uh, what God speaks of a promised future. And so let's, let's dive in. Um, the announcement of judgment that comes in verses 1 to 9. Let me read verses 1 through 9. Listen along. Obadiah 1 through 9. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If these came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to, their, to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman. Taman, by the way, was a grandson of Esau. We're not sure if he's speaking to literally like those 
folks or if it's possibly a region within, but, but the name comes from Genesis 36. Back to verse 9. So every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. That's an announcement of judgment against this people. And, and at the core is the sin of pride. You, you heard it, I hope. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Uh, Edom, they, they, where they lived, that land, um, it was such that um, there were elevations up to 5,000 feet above sea level. Um, and it's likely that they believed that because of their location, you know, others couldn't get to them. And they just were so proud about who they were and about where their land was. that They believed nothing could come against them. But God says, no, I, I will destroy you for what you've done. And so the pride of Edom is at the core of this announcement of judgment. And then we move into verses 10 to 14, the reasons even beyond pride for judgment. Listen as I read 10 to 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, speaking of Babylon, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Notice, now he's speaking like in the present on the one hand, they, they're guilty of pride in their, their evil uh, actions for what they did when Babylon came, but now God is saying, do not gloat, be proud. Let me hear the pride issue still. Um, verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So their violence was for what they had done toward Judah, but... In, in these verses 12 to 14, there, there's also an awareness that um, you, you're still doing things. Don't, do not keep doing the, the way it's written. Do not, do not do these things presently. Um, the Edomites, they were guilty of bragging and gloating over what had happened to Judah, over all kinds of looting and capturing of fugitives and delivering them. I mean, this is an example of like a slave trade, literally, as they helped those be taken into Babylonian captivity. Edom was prideful and wicked and violent against their neighbors, against their family. And that leads us then to the final section, the promised future. Uh, But again, we're going to pivot and pause with verse 15. So, Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you, speaking to Edom, have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So let's pause. We we get the benefit of having the small book this morning, and so we can drill down a little more onto this topic of the day of the Lord. So this is one of those things that's a bit of a challenge for us uh, Christians, if we're honest. In fact, take a look at the the screen. Titus 2.13 says, 
we, God's people, are waiting for our blessed hope, which is what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord. Hey, we're, we're excited about it, and we're waiting for that blessed hope. It's going to be a glorious thing when Jesus returns. But we, so we have to kind of understand a little bit that we, we sit, in terms of chronological history and redemptive history, we are on this side of the cross, of the finished work of Jesus. But on the other side of the cross, prior to the cross, when, when God's covenant was with his people, um, the day of the Lord meant a different thing. They, they weren't anxiously awaiting the Lord's appearing. And we've seen this already uh, in, in, our, in our study of these other prophets. The, the day of the Lord, it's a term that can speak of events that surround God judging his people and his visiting them in judgment. Um, the day of the Lord can speak of God judging the nations. And, and of course, that's what we have here in Obadiah. That, that's part of the day of the Lord. So it's judgment on God's people for breaking covenant. Uh, it's judgment upon nations for um, the way they treat God's people. God had said way back in Genesis, when, when he called Abraham, he said, I will bless you and your descendants, the people of Israel, and, and those that bless you, those nations that take good care of you, I will bless. But those nations that curse you and are your enemies, I will deal with because you're my people. Um, and so the day of the Lord, depending on when we're talking and to whom we're talking to, it, it wasn't a glorious, glorious thing. God would, would punish nations for their brutalities. Isaiah speaks of uh, punishing Babylon. Jeremiah speaks of the punishment of Egypt. Of course, of course here in Obadiah 15, it's Edom. And many other nations are listed throughout the, the prophets. All of this, again, is just to help us understand, I like how one writer puts it, the day, that is the day of the Lord, is not unique, but may be repeated as circumstances call for it. So it's not just a one-time deal, meaning unique in that way. Um, the day of the Lord. Uh, but for us, we, we say, okay, those the day of the Lord has happened. God's judged and, and done some things against the nations, but, but there's still the forthcoming day of the Lord, this day that will happen when Jesus returns personally and bodily and gloriously. And so, back to Titus 2, we wait for that blessed hope. He's coming. He's coming. It's going to be good when he comes. The appearing of the glory of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful verse. And so for Christians, we hold on to it as a great day. But we have to remember, that's glorious for us. What does it mean for those that don't know the Lord? So let me just read 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 11. A lot of Bible today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2, 2 through 11. So writing to a church writing to Christians, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's his second coming, will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, there's peace, security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 
So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. The day of the Lord is our glorious hope, and it's something we are to encourage one another with, but it is still a day of judgment for those that don't know the Lord. So we are to be good newsers, telling people who God is, what he's done, and warning people, respond, respond to Jesus. Deal with them. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Because you don't know. Like, you don't know when a thief's going to come. I've never had a thief show up and tell us that they're coming. Some of you heard um, one of our family members' bikes was stolen a couple weeks ago, and they didn't have the courtesy to tell us that they were going to come take the bike. Right? No. We would have prepared. We wouldn't have let it happen. So thieves come when you don't expect it. And and God is saying his return is going to strike unbelievers like that. So the day of the Lord, it's glorious for us. But we need to to feel the tension there for those that are going to experience the day of the Lord. Well, let's get back to Obadiah briefly. In verses 16 through 15 to 21 then, Uh, We have this promised future. So picking it up at verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Now there's a glimmer of hope. Even though God's people have been taken captive and they've been subject to Edom and the Babylonians, listen to what God says. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob will be like a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Although, interestingly, back in Amos, there's, there's a mention of a remnant. So right here, right now, there's a word of judgment but but there is a remnant of of God's people from every nation and tribe and tongue, right, through Christ. For the Lord has spoken, verse 19, those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanite as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion, rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In other words, again, summarizing briefly, there's a mention there of reunited Israel, right? This, these two nations that are separated and both taken off respectively into their captivity, their judgment, the day of the Lord that struck them, there is a reuniting that's coming. Ezekiel 25, verse 14, speaks of this and so forth. 
So this little letter, this most minor, minor prophet tells us about the day of the Lord, forces us to understand again and to hear that on the one hand for us, on this side of the cross, who have been saved by grace, it's a glorious day when Jesus comes and we should pray, come Jesus, come. And yet in praying that, we should be aware of those who are gonna face God. And we all will face God, of course, but thank you, Lord Jesus, that in Christ we can face you because of Christ. But that other teaching, we, we saw it earlier uh, in, in this most minor, minor prophet. It's a good reminder about pride. This little country, they were so full of themselves. And God says, hey, your, your pride is gonna be your downfall. You who think you can't be touched. And it's a reminder of some verses we know. James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, they both quote the proverb, brief 34, um, that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Strong words. It doesn't just say God, you know, has a problem with the proud. No, he opposes, opposes. God opposes the proud. Um, again, we don't have time, but we could, we could drill in from old through the New Testament of examples and specific teachings where, where pride is, is the chief sin. This is why it's a deadly sin in, in church history and, uh, and so on. It is a big problem. The Lord opposes it, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus, in his life and ministry, he opposed prideful people. The religious self-righteous, which is pride, If you think you're righteous in your own abilities, that's pride. Jesus opposed those types, but to the people that admitted they were sinners and were wretches and needed him, he gave them grace. We see Jesus live that out. Again, the the scriptures teach it. We we are to be people that are not self-righteously proud, that don't think we need God, that, oh, I got it. You know, I got this thing figured out, life. You know, I'm a good person or whatever. Or even once we've come to Christ, be prideful in what we know and how we've lived. Um, We are being sanctified and we're all at the foot of the cross at the same place. God calls us to be humble. And so we should hear this word of judgment against pride and, and, and just repent and say, God, please, where there's pride, take it away, humble me. Graciously, Lord, because I don't want to be having you oppose me. Well, that brings us then finally this morning to the Lord's Supper. We'll pivot out of Obadiah to 1 Corinthians. As is our norm, we, on the first Sunday of the month, we remember the Lord's Supper. And again, what are we remembering? We're remembering the gospel. We're remembering that Jesus came to live the life that we can't live, to, to live the, the humble life that we can't live because we're prideful people, to, to, to live perfectly before God um, because we can't. And then he went to the cross to be the substitute, um, to bear God's wrath of judgment so that we don't have to, on the day of the Lord, bear the wrath of God. And, and so... The Lord's Supper, communion, we, we remember this, this meal that Jesus instituted 
uh, on the night before he was betrayed and arrested and beaten and mocked and, and eventually hung onto a cross where he took bread and he gave it and said, this represents my body, which is given for you. And then he took uh, the wine after the meal and said, this represents my blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. Again, no longer the old covenant, no longer rep- repetitive over and over again animal sacrifices that, that couldn't deal with sin. But now my once for all blood is gonna deal with sin. And, and so God's people are to remember uh, his blood poured out. So I'm gonna ask Rich and Jan uh, to come around and uh, pass the baskets. And if you take one of our little... COVID cups, as we still call them. And again, our norm is that as, as a church family, this is a family meal. So just once the basket comes, just grab one of these cups and um, hang on to it. And, uh, and then we will remember together this meal. While they're coming, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul says that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's together take the bread side. And as a family, let's eat together. Jesus, we thank you for the body, your body, given up to the cross. And as we eat, we remember your sacrifice. We give you thanks. And then let's take the cup side and together drink and remember. And so, Lord, thank you for the blood of the new covenant poured out for forgiveness once for all. It's finished. It is finished, Jesus, you said, from the cross. The work of redemption is done. And now, this just for a few moments. Talk to the Lord Paul goes on, you know, here in 1 Corinthians to say, whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood. So we've taken this meal together, but now let's just talk to the Lord. If there's some sin you need to confess, um, talk to him just quietly, your spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, If you need to soak in the grace that we have in the gospel, just talk to him. And in, in a moment, I'll close in prayer and we'll stand to sing our our final song.